and greetings everyone. This is Robin Robinson and thank you for joining in our podcast of Whiskey and. And in Whiskey and dot dot dot, this is a podcast where we use whiskey as the social lubricant to sort of ease our way into the depths of the discussions that we typically have when we are late at night having whiskey. And we've had some wonderful subjects and I've had some terrific guests here on whiskey and uh, talking about racism and talking about anti-Semitism and the difference between religion and faith. And I'm very pleased to welcome my guest, Effie Papanakalis. <laughs> you know what? I didn't do that on purpose. I actually did not. Boy, you know, I'm I'm having the brain fart of all time. My last name has been butchered since I was a kid. They used to, they used to call me Snuffle Up because as a kid, but it's Panagopoulos. <laughs> it's Effie Panagopoulos. Panagopoulos. Thank you. I knew that. Effie Panagopoulos, um, who is uh, truly uh, an entrepreneur and, and and a woman at the same time, as you probably figured that out by now, uh, which is sort of like a, a double a double whammy here. And the reason why I wanted to explore this subject matter, because uh, the entrepreneurialism has, has taken on a cultural impact in the last 10 years that I think has gone from something that was initially meant to maybe spur people into action into, I believe, it could actually even be uh, deleterious to a lot of people's psychological health. There has been such a, an emphasis on being an entrepreneur, on being a person who can start your own business, a, pe- a person who can take the bull by the horns, so to speak, and, uh, and create something and be rich. And it, there's a mythology behind that. And there are some people who are cut out for it and some people who aren't. Uh, Effie, I've known I've known about Effie for actually a number of years before I actually met her, because we're both in the spirits industry, and I had heard the name uh, over and over again. And obviously, it's an easy name to remember once you can kind of like actually pronounce it. Once you can pronounce it, right? And she's got a spirit brand. I'm going to allow her to talk about that. But it was the it's the effort that she puts in and the frustration that go that is this tangential to that that makes makes entrepreneurship something different than the mythology that has been created around it. So we're going to explore a little bit about the facts and the myths around that. So the question I have for for Effie is, you know, I mean. How many times a day do you get your head banged against the wall by the world as an entrepreneur? On a daily basis. On a daily basis. I mean, it literally just happened this morning where I am not proud to say that I'm outsourcing my bookkeeping um, to India, but this is kind of like a reality of being a startup brand is... Please believe I have interviewed like five bookkeepers in the U.S. and I just can't afford the hourly rates. Um, so I'm now dealing with my second bookkeeper in India and, you know, there's definitely the frustration of things that get lost in translation, right? Mm. So I've got the old bookkeeper doesn't want to communicate anymore. The new bookkeeping team's looking at the books and they're like, but wait, but this doesn't match up with your tax return. And all I'm thinking this morning, this was our reconciliation call this morning. And all I'm thinking was like, oh my God, 
The 2019 taxes are wrong. All my investors' K-1s are wrong. Oh my god, we have to fix this all over again. And, um, you know, I end up emailing the tax accountant. He's like, okay, take a deep breath, you know, and explains all this accounting speak that, you know, I always say, and I'm very open with my investors as well, I am a sales and marketing uh, you know, I hate using the word expert, but let's just use that word. Well, you're an expert by virtue of the fact that you are there in the grit of it every day. And many years of experience in the liquor right. industry doing sales and marketing, right? right? So I always say, like, when I came on to do this thing, which is create my own brand, you know, that kind of logistics, finance were not my jam. Well, yeah. you know, that's, I mean, we, we can start right there, right? You know? Okay, when so, it, in, so terms let's start, of, in terms of in terms of entrepreneurship, okay, there's, so let's start there's right the there. fun stuff and the, and the not fun stuff. Let's start right there, right? So, so well, first of all, let's tell everyone what is why you're an entrepreneur. What is the product that you have? My brand is called Cleos, Cleos Mastica Spirit. It's a Greek liqueur made from a superfood called Mastica, that is a sap from a tree that grows only on one island in the entire planet. Um, it has healing properties for the stomach and digestive system. Mastica kills H. pylori, which is the bacteria that causes peptic ulcers, gastric cancer, and acid reflux. Healing properties for the stomach are actually retained in liquor form. I can say that anecdotally. The doctor who's the head of research and development for the Heos Mastica Growers Association, which is the farmer's collaborative that actually owns all these trees, has also confirmed this. But, um, you know, someone called me out recently asking if I had done double blind studies on my alcohol and gut health. And I said, well, according to the TTB, it's illegal to say alcohol is good for your health. So why would I spend hundreds of thousands of dollars doing double blind studies um, to prove this? I did not create a liquor brand to be a health product. When I you know, rediscovered Mastica as an adult, I was in Mykonos. It was the summer of 2008. I was a brand ambassador for Metaxa which is the largest global Greek spirit brand. It's a Greek brandy. That job brought me back to Greece after not having been for many years. And I'm in Mykonos and everyone around me is doing shots of Mastika. And I tasted it and I had this Proustian rush. Like it brought me back to my childhood. Whoa, wait, whoa, whoa. A Proustian rush. Yes. Oh, man. Wow. Mar okay. But that's, that's, Marcel Proust. That was a, that's a heavy... Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt the flow, but that was a heavy... Literary reference. Go ahead. So you have a Proustian rush of everyone doing Mastika. Well, you know, they say that smell and taste is very evocative when it comes to memory, right? Sure. So when I first tasted Mastika as an adult, it literally brought me back to being five years old in my mother's village with my grandmother because we used to have these spoon desserts mm. that were made from Mastika, made from that same raw ingredient. Mm. And so St. Germain had launched in 2007, which, you know, as you know, became ubiquitous on back bars everywhere. People started calling it bartender's ketchup because you could kind of throw it in everything. Sure. And so when I tasted Mastica for the first time, it was really my eureka moment. And I thought to myself, ooh, this could be the next St. Germain. Mm. Why the hell isn't this in the United States yet? Mm. And I'm going to be the one to make this happen. Wow. Um, so yeah, from so you had this sort of, it, it was very interesting. You had this sort of like coming home experience and then this entire new, uh, layer that was put on top of that with Mystica. Now that you're an adult brings you back to, to being a child. You have this emotional connection. Boom. 
you get this idea, I'm going to start this brand, I'm going to bring this to the U.S. As you went through that, how many people told you no? I mean, so, 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 so many. I mean, it yeah. was a, from 2000, I launched my brand in the United States, March of 2018. Okay. So like I said, that Eureka moment was summer of 2008. Mm-hmm. So 10 years transpired from that Eureka oh, moment till the, the day that I actually the launched brand. Oh, wow. the brand. Okay. So, I mean, I could tell you the whole story. I don't know. It might be no. too long for the podcast. Well, it's, it's actually, it's it, Brandon, we want people to actually kind of experience and, 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 and go out and get the brand here. But it's, it, it, it's, it's the experience about what you had to go through to, to get to where you're at now and where you see. So in the future, the we talk about everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, right? You're living that life. How glamorous is it? It's not glamorous at all. Why? I mean, you know, there's definitely moments. There's definitely moments, but I do think, you know, to your to your previous point about, you know, kind of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurialism, it's kind of like entrepreneurs are the new rock stars. And I feel like societally there were a number of things. You mentioned the 2008, you know, economic bust. Mm-hmm. And the need for people to kind of work for themselves because you can't rely on corporate America. I myself was laid off in 2008. Of course. Um, you know, mass layoffs. It was like the Gestapo, one person after another. Wow. I mean, in wow. at Remy Cointreau. And, um, that's who owned Metaxa. That's who owned okay. Metaxa. Right. And then the global team was kind of like, but wait, we paid you out of the global budget. And at the time, it was after I had already, you know, had that moment with Mastika and I was kind of like, no, I'm, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go back to this. I'm going to try to I'm going to try to do this. But there was that there was the onset of social media, which, you know, created this environment where anyone can become Insta rich, Insta famous or a quote unquote influencer. And then you've got, you know, kind of just a lot going on in pop culture with Shark Tank, Tony Robbins, um, Gary Vaynerchuk, all these kind of uh, were the they part, were they influential to the, you? Actually, the first book that I read was Rich Dad Poor Dad oh, by yeah. Um, yeah. what is it? Key Robert? What was yeah. his name? Key Kimosaki? I can't remember his name. Guy Kiyosaki. That was yeah. the book that I read. Yeah. Um, that I can't really say like it lit the entrepreneurial fire. I mean, being being Greek, being an entrepreneur is in your blood when you are Greek. Why is that? You know, because <laughs> Greeks are, you know. Because so many we, people butcher your name. Uh, you, uh, no, <laughs> Greeks, we, we don't like authority, you know. Oh, okay. We don't like authority. Okay. We don't pay our taxes. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Greeks are very kind of fiercely independent people. And there was such a mass. And my parents, you know, were part of that generation. You know, there was a mass exodus in the 60s and 70s. My grandfather had come right after World War II. He came to Chicago, worked for a tire factory, saved a bunch of money, sent it back to the village in Greece, wanted the family to move over. My aunt and my uncle moved over and they just really didn't like like the life in Chicago and they were kind of like, we're going back, right? My dad came over. My parents had an arranged marriage. And oh my God, that's so old country. Totally. Yeah, and right, so yeah. my dad came in his 20s, went back to Greece in his 30s, married my mother, brought her over to the States. A year later, I was born. 
And I went to a Greek bilingual program growing up. So my first language was actually Greek. Mm. I know it sounds sappy, but it was constantly in our face. I have a younger sister growing up that we did not have what the neighbors had. We could not go on the ski trip. We could not buy the clothes. We had to go to the gap when everything was on sale, you know, like, and I know it sounds really corny, but money was such a in my face subject when I was a kid that I really, from a very young age, was determined that I was going to do better and be better than my parents. Well, then this is perfect know? because this is, and this is very much the immigrant's the immigrant story, right? Especially the, the children of immigrants. My family is struggling, you know, uh, either they have their own business or they're working for somewhere else. I'm seeing them work day and night. You know, I never get to see them. We're always conscious about money. We don't have enough. My friends have everything more than I do. And this becomes part of this, doesn't it? It was definitely, you uh, know, a big, big driver. Yeah, it was yeah. definitely a big driver for me. And then I have to say, you know, kind of, I majored in French in college. So, you know, it's it's a pretty much a fact that I think it's something like 90% of people do nothing having to do with their majors yeah, <laughs> in right. terms of career. Yeah. Um, but I did teach high school Spanish and then I worked for Univision um, and I was working nine to five uh, at the radio station, and funny so enough... So you went at what, in communications, as you were initially, or...? I was a French major. I was oh, a, French major. I was okay, a romance language okay. major at Boston yeah. College. And, um, you know, I taught high school Spanish, and then I went to work for Univision as a copywriter, and I was working 9 to 5. I couldn't stand it. I'd also gotten certified as a trainer my senior year in college, and so, like, I love the gym, I love working out, it's a huge part of my life, and it's a huge savior for me in terms of my choice of career now Mm -hmm. being an entrepreneur. And um, I have to say, you know, I started doing uh, liquor tastings, events. I was that girl. I was that girl in the neon green shirt with a green feather boa giving you shots of Midori in Boston. Of course. In, like, when I was uh, 19. uh, Who who remembers Effie then? Uh, (laughs) For those of you uh, in Boston drinking Midori. Yes. Yes, yes. I created like a shot called the Larry Bird, you know, because oh, the door was green and it was course. just hilarious. Like, And it's owned by Suntory. So I vividly remember it's like 30 Japanese men from Suntory came to visit Boston. And I had this event with like the big neon green ice sculpture and me and I hired all the girls and we're doing the Larry Bird shots. I mean, you know, it was that was how I started off in the industry, you yeah. know, it's like a yeah promo model essentially right but that was my side job so i had a you know i was a teacher and then i did this at night or i worked at univision and then i did this (laughs) i did this stuff at night but i always thought to myself like what an easy job you know like one of my cousins owned one of the big sports bars in boston called the rack and so i had so many contacts in nightlife Mm -hmm. you know as like a young 20 year old in the city that I just thought like, oh, what a piece of cake. And like these reps, they don't go into the office and, you know, they're they're working for it like It looks great. And they're drinking. And they're and drinking and, they're drinking. and having fun. And yeah. I'm like, I want this job. I want job. that job. Yeah. There you go. Totally. How many times, how many times have we all heard that? Totally, right? totally. So, you know, I ended up 
sending my resume to liquor companies for years, years before I got hired. Like Mm. I ended up moving to Vegas on a uh, job transfer. So I worked on the radio side. I even did voiceover work on air Mm. for Spanish radio. And it was finally when I was in San Diego, I got two, I got a bunch of job offers all at once, but one was Brown Foreman, one was Bacardi. And I like the Bacardi portfolio better. I moved sight unseen to San Francisco, put my stuff in a U-Haul with my car attached to the back and drove nine hours up north Mm. to a brand new city for my first official like market manager job in the liquor industry, working for Team Enterprise and uh, representing Bacardi USA brands. So I launched Corzo Tequila. I kind of relaunched Grey Goose when Bacardi bought that brand. And it was from there that I got the job with Metaxa. Was Metaxa like an easy move? It was a, it was, it was Greek. It was a Greek brandy that made sense to you, or what was, what was the connection? Well, first of all, that the the interview process for that job was like six months. Oh yeah. Right. So I wouldn't say it was an easy move. I moved from San Francisco to Chicago. I went from a managing one city to being a national brand ambassador, traveling all around the country. And I went from working on a portfolio of really strong brands, you know, Bombay Sapphire, Dewars, Grey Goose, to working on this old dusty Greek brand. You know, I used to joke it was collecting dust on back bars everywhere. Oh, yeah. Right next to the Fernet bottle. <laughs> no, more like Galliano. Yeah, more like Galliano. People were drinking yeah. Fernet when I yeah, worked at on that Metaxa. point they were, yeah. But that kind of was almost how, you know, my love affair with the old country got sparked again, you know, working on Metaxa. It definitely was the funnest job I've ever had to date, honestly. Um, And it brought me back to Greece and it brought me to, you know, not only rediscover my roots and my heritage, but, you know, also discover Mastika. So that was really the impetus for getting Cleos off the ground. So was that all there was to it for you to actually say, I'm going to do this on my own? No. Was there something prior to that other than the 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 the, the typical Greek anti-authoritism, anti-authoritarianism, whatever, being anti-authority? Yeah. Uh, you know, at this point, I think we should actually talk about the whiskey. So, tell people what you picked, because I so uh, you know the whole idea of whiskey and is to come down to my over to my house and pick a whiskey from uh, what we now know is 954 bottles of whiskey. And uh, Effie told me prior to this that she had been uh, a fan of Japanese whiskey. So what it, tell everybody what, what it is that you, you picked and, and what do you think of it so far? So I don't know if I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. EY? It can't be any worse than what I do with your name. So EY yeah. EY, you got it. Yeah, exactly. Mars right. Whiskey. Yeah, it's EY. Yeah. I-W-A-I for those who, uh, who are listening. So what do you think? I mean... I- I love it. Like I said, it the color kind of belies the flavor a little bit because it's really golden. It's a bit, it's a bit darker, and I presumed it was gonna be, I don't know, have a little more like chutzpah, and it's actually like really delicate and elegant and yeah. and refined and yeah. really well rounded. So EY uh, is made by the Mars Shinshu uh, Company. It's one of my all-time favorite whiskeys. Uh, when I actually, when I blind taste people on this, I don't tell them it's whiskey. I'll, it gets taken for brandy. Ooh, I was gonna say you could probably mistake yeah. this for an aged rum or a yeah, brandy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it is a, it's a mostly malt. 
like 95, 93% malt and a little bit of other grains in there mixed in. But what's the key to this is that they age it in separate barrels of ex-bourbon, ex-sherry, ex-port, ex-wine, um, American oak, French oak. And they let the, each barrel come to its own maturity. And then in Japanese style, it's blended. And that's actually the definitive of what Japan, Japanese whiskey is based on the idea. The blender creates the, the, the expression, not the distiller, as we think about in the West. It's really about the blender. So the blender, and this goes back to the beginning of Japanese whiskey with, uh, with Suntory and Nika. The idea that they are responsible for the creation. So it's all about all the different samples. They take all the different barrel samples and they bring this together and they create a consistent product. But Japanese whiskey is also light and delicate and fruity. Uh, it is not, it, chutzpah would maybe not be the word for, uh, for, for Japanese whiskey. It's much more of a silk scarf. I've definitely tasted some that are, it can be a little more intense. Some of it depending on the proof and you know like Hakushu can be a little smoky but this is actually really meant to be just a very beautiful slide and a, and a nice glide. So it's actually it's great for the conversation here too because it's it's sort of the antithesis of what the conversation is you know it, it, it's sort of like the the nice easy the, the conversation the easy backbone uh, the easy backbone. So okay so you take on you, you take on this um, this idea. And, uh, you know, Greeks are anti-authoritarian and, and don't pay their taxes. And it seems like the perfect thing to do. Um, obviously, you know, in New York, we're very aware that, you know, the Greeks were the entrepreneurs of diners and, and restaurants everywhere, right? Yes. It was the, the, the prototypical Greek diner is, uh, is, is about as New York as, as you're going to get. Totally. Yeah. And in Boston, it's Dunkin' Donuts, Dry Cleaners, and House of Pizza. Oh, okay. Every town in Massachusetts has a House of Pizza, and you can pretty much guarantee that that's a Greek person it's a that Greek owns person. that House of Pizza. So it's really about Greeks owning their own businesses. You know, so in a way, this is actually you know, almost you know, culturally aligned with, 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 with the way you grew up. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, and then I would also say... Uh, look, you know, I was definitely an overachiever in high school. I was, you know, almost a straight A student. I received a number of academic scholarships to college. I would say in college, I definitely partied quite a bit because my parents, my mom particularly, was very strict growing up. So I always kind of felt this thing of like, you're not living up to your full potential, oh. you know? And so um, I you know, subsequently in my career, I always felt, this is horrible to say, but this is, I think this is kind of like a marker for future entrepreneurs, you know, is I kind of always felt like whomever was superior to me, I could do what they were doing better or I helped them be better, you know, and isn't that like, you know, uh, isn't that like from Andy, get your gun, anything you can do, I can do better. I right. Mean, is, is that? Yeah. Look, I think there's a lot of people out there that are happy to be in subordinate roles. You yeah. know, I just kind of no matter where I ended up and then like, look, you know, when I worked at Metaxa, I'm never going to forget, I got scolded for my tone in an email. And I'm like, tone? Where's the tone? 
Like it's whoa, bu- whoa, whoa, it's whoa, bu- really? It's so, bu- it's bullet points. You know, so it's bullet points. Your tone in an email. I got written up. I actually got a, a written warning for mm. my tone in an email. In an email. Yeah. Um, and how much then, of that had to do with you being a woman? I, I uh, that's exactly what I was gonna get to next. Like I kind of was just in my mind. I was always like, this is such bullshit. You wow. know, like there's no tone in this email. You really got to be digging if you're looking for tone yeah. in the email. Yeah. It's basic like, oh, I'm coming to the market. Can we do X, Y, and Z? So apparently it came off like aggressive or, you know, kind of uh, dictatorial or something like this. Mm. When at the end of the day, like, what do you want me to do? Put smiley faces all over the email? Would that soften the tone, quote unquote? <laughs> you know, and then the same thing happened to me when I was working. Um, so I helped an existing uh, brand of Mastika come into the United States. I consulted for the largest brand out of Greece. I helped him come over to the States and get importation and distribution. I worked for him for free based on a consulting agreement. He did not pay me the money owed to me in my consulting agreement. And all the, you know, let's put it, items in the scope of work were achieved. And so at that point is when I really decided, F this, I'm going to go at it on my own. Oh, okay. But I kind of was like struggling in New York, you know, consulting for another startup rum brand, helping them get off the ground, trying to make ends meet, meeting with any VC that I could possibly meet with. This is when I knew nothing about raising money, Mm. you know, and had really just a PowerPoint presentation. You know, I didn't even have liquid at the time. So I got eaten alive shark tank style and it came to the point where i was kind of like i had to get a job again Mm. so i took a job as uh you know marketing manager for di serrano um the italian brand but i worked for the italian so i was the go-between between between global italy and bacardi usa and i had to move down to miami and work out of the bacardi corporate office so once again i'm in a you know leadership role and i got chastised for my tone again in an email and yes once one thing happens once twice yes do we have to be introspective and look at ourselves absolutely (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely but what was just comical was the whole the whole scenario i came into a role where 30 people would be copied on an email okay between italy and and bacardi usa the italians hated Bacardi, Bacardi hated the Italians. They all thought each side was inefficient, not communicating properly, et cetera, et cetera. So when I came in, I literally just said, look, stop, we're gonna stop with these emails. You all in Italy are gonna email me, only me, and then I'm gonna email the appropriate parties at Bacardi. Well, guess what? That email got me another warning. And I had this meeting with you my tone problem again. I had yeah. this meeting with my uh, boss, um, and he literally said to me, and this is no joke, zero exaggeration. Um, I had a direct report in the United States, and then I had uh, two other reports in Italy. One was the global um, marketing manager, and then one was the global manager period for Ilva. And this individual said to me, there is a chain of command. This is your boss. This is the boss of your boss. Anything you're going to send, you need to get approval first. Mm. You know? And I literally was just like, wow, man. 
I, I was like, am I in an episode of Mad Men right now? This is, so, pardon me, so this fucking is, ridiculous, so, so, right? So this is actually part of this. I mean, this is actually, I think, one of the things that drives this whole um, the mystique of the entrepreneur then is essentially that, you know, and quite honestly, I'm very much that same person. I chafe at the uh, authority, you know, kiss up. I'm not very good doing internal politics. I'd much rather do things as I see fit or with a small group of people that we can be very, you know. What, so what are the qualities then? You know, what, if, if, if someone had come to you and said, define for me the qualities that are going to allow me to actually take a product into a marketplace. It doesn't have to be a liquor product, um, but a product into the marketplace. What are those qualities? You know, I mean, anti-authoritarianism, I think, is probably built into it. You know, I don't want to be part of a, of a superstructure. But what are the other things that people would need to know? That are, are that that have helped you, or maybe you're still struggling to get that quality. I literally think like so. I do this seminar, and it's called Entrepreneurialism in Crisis: How to Start a Brand with Little to None of Your Own Money. Okay. And I, it's broken down into like ten different segments. Um, and without getting into any of that, I'm gonna literally say the number one quality that you must have is stick to itiveness. Okay. So perseverance, which is the old story, right? Uh, you know, I came out of show business, and and you know uh, we, what we talked about all the time were tw- uh, the the twenty year overnight successes. Right. Right. And this person had actually been grinding out in 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 dinner theater and summer stock for twenty years, and all of a sudden, bam, they became a star. You know, and that's the number one thing that you're saying that people have to think about. Absolutely, and I think it's part probably the number one reason why people fail. You know, is. Um, Again, I don't want to say like giving up, but more so just, you know, you've got to kind of, you got to find a way. You've got to take any negative and figure out how you're going to turn that around and how you can wade through the murky waters. You know, I've spoken about this quite a bit um, and I kind of, I compare the entrepreneurial journey to the mythological story of Sisyphus, who Mm -hmm. was the guy that was punished by Zeus to eternally push a boulder up a hill. And then when he gets to the top of the hill, the boulder gets pushed back down. And I mean, that's it. That's it. You know, the minute you feel like you've tackled one obstacle, the universe throws some other shit in your face, you know? Um, Okay. So then, so perseverance is a wonderful generic. Yeah. You got to persevere. Right. But what's that mean? I mean, you know, perseverance there's sacrifice that comes with perseverance, mm-hmm. right? There are things that you're not going to be able to do that other people have done, or maybe they're, you know, they were the, your early dreams in your life that are, are, are different now. Um, uh, how many? How much of that has changed? Uh, how, how much has it changed, Effie? So, you know, one of the things, like in terms of kind of like my climbing up the ladder, I had a pretty nice role you know, with Di Serrano, I had a beautiful apartment in Miami, like really kind of nice lifestyle. 
and I had to put everything in a storage unit. It's still in the storage unit. I thought it was only going to be a year of not having my own place and my stuff's still in a storage unit in Miami. And I moved back home with my mom in a one bedroom apartment, sleeping on the couch for about a year and a half. Mm. Um, And I know this sounds cliche too, right? You've got the like, oh, whoever started the thing out of his basement or in the garage or whatever. But like, yeah, you know, you, you had, you you actually had to, you had to eat it. Yeah, very much. And I, and I, and I still am. And I still am. And the funny thing was, I always kind of thought like, oh, it's only going to be a year, you know, it's only going to be a year and then I'm going to raise my series A and then I'm going to be good, (laughs) you know? And it's like, uh, no, (laughs) no, the universe has other plans for you, (laughs) my friend, you know, um, like a global (laughs) pandemic. Like man makes plans (laughs) and God laughs, right? Right. Yeah. Right. No, it couldn't, couldn't uh, like the, the, the best example of this, um, you know, because I could just illustrate many, many examples, but with my first production run, you know, so my bottle and cap are definitely complicated. It's a custom bottle, um, which so many people had said, oh, like do a stock bottle. And I was like, no, I need my product to be pretty, you know, like I want a beautiful brand that kind of speaks to me. Like the brand is very much an extension of who I am. Ah, okay. So this is critical here. This is really you and Effie in a bottle, isn't it? it it's, oh, come on. Say it. It's it's, yeah, it it's a projection of who I want to be. It's yeah. not who I am right okay, now. You know, it's my who product, you want to be. My product is a luxury brand, and I am not very luxury right now. <laughs> okay. Well, you're working, on a, sure. hey, you're working on a beer budget, but you got champagne in your mind. Exactly. That's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Exactly. Um, so, but that's that's critical. That's critical. With every, I mean, I'm sitting here looking at this book of mine. This is me. This is me in 295 pages, right? It's as it should be. This should be you, right? So it's a personification of you, right? Well, very much so. And that's, you know, goes back to being a kind of another, let's call it ingredient of the cocktail of what it, what it is, you know, for, for entrepreneurs. When you work for someone else, you know, you are going to inevitably be creatively stifled and not able to fully express yourself, you know? And that's kind of what I always thought. Like when I worked at Bacardi, I used to call the legal department the sales and marketing prevention department, right? <laughs> that's exactly what they are, the sales prevention. So, right? um, you know, and again, like I, you know, I, I joke about it, but I appreciate the experience because now I know like, oh, well, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't do that. So, but Or at least you know where the roadblock's going to be, egg, right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Right. You know, but it can be, you know, it can be a little extreme. Like the bureaucracy, the red tape can be a little extreme. And that is the reason why so many startups have been purchased by the big companies in the past years because the amount of years time money spent on research and development that it would take for one of the major companies to create most of your startup brands regular startups do this in such a a shorter time and in a faster route to market because of that lack of bureaucracy that you do all the dirty work as a startup brand, that's why you end up getting acquired, right? So that also was kind of like the big illusion for me. You know, when I was living in New York, you know, 2007 to 2011, I had a lot of friends, most of them were, all of them were guys Mm -hmm. um, that were starting brands. And I kind of was like, this guy can do it. I can do it, you know? Yeah. but one of my biggest roadblocks and continues to be a roadblock was um, raising capital. 
Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. So when you're talking about raising capital, you're talking about and any anyone who watches, uh, you know, um, Shark Tank and it goes through the entire uh, same thing. The capital is meant specifically to get you from point blank to point blank. Is that correct? Sure. Okay. Yep. And so what point are you at? So if we're like doing, you know, A through E, right? What point are you at and where where's, where's the capital uh, investment uh, to get you to? So I raised, my initial goal with fundraising was 140000 in a pre-seed round. Okay. I ended up raising double that. I raised 280000 in that round. And um, the funny thing was, like, I was so, I had so much anxiety when it came to raising money that I ended up doing a bodybuilding competition as, like, this parallel, super challenging, get-me-out-of-my-comfort-zone thing so that I could also get very laser-focused and disciplined. And that was the precursor to me kicking off this capital raise. And I was successful, and I was so successful at it that I kind of was on a roll, and I was like, I don't even want to start the business. I want to just keep raising money. I want to see how far I can take it. It became its own thing. Yeah, I mean, and and that's the thing. Raising money is a full-time job in and of itself, which is why it's extremely challenging being a one-man band trying to raise money Deal with operations of your company. You know, right now I'm dealing with a new production run, trying to stay alive during COVID, trying to make sure I don't run out of cash, and then actually trying to raise money when VCs are completely not interested at all. Like, it's been the most challenging time of the existence of the business. And I know it is for a lot of people right now. I know I'm not special, but I've definitely been through some crap. Like the first production run I mentioned earlier, um, because we were talking about the bottle and the cap was a complete disaster. Hmm. The company that I used, uh, packaging company never tested the bottles and caps in tandem. So on day two of filling at the distillery, Hmm. I get an email from my distiller being like, and it was three o'clock in the morning and I was up because I had already accustomed myself to being up at three o'clock in the morning. And I get this email that says, I don't have good news for you. 6% of the bottles are breaking on the production line. She also sent me videos of people manually applying the cap and then the bottles breaking and then their hands bleeding. Oh no. Oh my God. And so it was a complete it was my worst nightmare. And I had my Nancy Kerrigan, like, why me moment? Because it took so long for me to even get to this point of having my first production run. I had planned a soft launch in Mykonos. And it's June 6th when I get this email. So I'm already late to launch in the summer in Mykonos. And, um, yeah, I, like, literally almost immediately fell into a depression where I was just kind of like the world is against me right now. And the evil eye on my bottle is not protecting me at all and feeling sorry for myself. And I talked to my buddy, Doug Ankra, who's another entrepreneur. He's uh, created the porn star martini and he's made that as a ready to drink. And I'm not gonna, I'm not good with the British accent, but he was like, you know, you, he kind of was just like, you have to make it happen. You have to get it out there. And I'm like, how the hell am I going to get this out there? Like, it's a faulty mm. product. This mm. is a li- product liability mm. issue. Like, I could get sued and get completely shut down before I even start. Mm. And so 
that day, I read an article on LinkedIn from Richard Branson, and it literally said, if you haven't lost your pants in your first production run, you haven't launched early enough. <laughs> so in my head, I was just kind of like, what What am I going to do? And so very long story Wisdom short. Wisdom from the mount on that. Right? Very long yeah. story short. I ripped the producer a new one. They came to Greece with me because they were trying to blame it on the Greeks and on the distillery, saying mm-hmm. that the distillery was probably like you know, applying too much pressure when putting the cap on. And I'm like, listen, man, no one is manually going to use too much pressure. Like if a manual twisting no, of a cap is going right. to break a bottle, it's That's your problem, not, not their and problem. And uh, where was the uh, bottle, uh, where's the cap producer? Um, They were located? in China, but in China. I used a company out of Canada to kind of, there was, the, was the, the middleman. Middle yeah. yeah, so I... And again, without getting in too much detail, because this is like, I'm not going to say I'm proud of my the way I negotiated this because I completely like screamed at this person in the middle of a village in Greece. And the next day I got a $40,000 refund, which never happens when you're dealing with China, like getting your money back never happens. But I literally basically said to this guy, like, look, I'm sleeping on my mother's couch. I have friends and family that have invested in my business. I am not some kind of rich trust fund kid right now. My whole, this is my life. I'm like, and all you keep saying is that you're blaming Greece, you're blaming the distillery. I haven't once heard from you. I'm sorry. Mm. I go, and so as far as I'm concerned, I don't even like you Mm. and I don't want to work with you. Mm. You could give me a refund right now. And I'm like, and I just think you have no integrity and I don't like you as a person. Right. So that was the conversation I had the day before I go into the distillery where my distiller had brought like three engineers Mm. who measured the torque at which the bottle broke. Literally, they came in like superstars and made this guy look so stupid. He looked at me over the table and was like, send me your bank information. I'll wire you tomorrow. And I kind of was like, "Wow," you know, because I had been so many... You know, in so many different roles, like I said, I'd always been kind of chastised for being, oh, too aggressive, your tone, this and that and the other thing. And the one thing with being an entrepreneur is like, you know what? Fuck you. This is who I am. You know, (laughs) this is who I am. This is it. You know, I work with the people that I like to work with, you know, and that's going to be in terms of hiring my team. I want to hire people that I really like and give them a piece of the pie and go on this journey together, Mm -hmm. which is not something that you really get to do in in corporate America, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So you know, in a weird way, and and this is something that you deal with as a woman being an entrepreneur, you know, a guy who is, you know, a tough guy is a badass or, you know, like applauded for doing those like, you know, aggressive moves, right? Whereas a woman is always, oh, she's a bitch, you know, look at the past election with Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a perfect example and mm-hmm. it's pathetic. Mm-hmm. You know, look at it now. Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, any strong women are always derided d- for their strength. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And it's one of these things where even going into investor meetings with with men, like I always feel like, should I temper my personality, you know, or be more feminine, you know, and it's 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 exhausting, you yeah. know. So I've really come to the place where I am who I am. I do not filter myself, yeah. you know. And so Effie unfiltered. That, that may be to my detriment, but at yeah. the end of the day, I'm doing it my way, right. and that's it. That's why 
That's part of the reason why I'm doing this. And that's part of the reason why my brand exists the way it is. It took me five years just to design the the bottle. I did 17 formulas for the liquid, Hmm. you know? So I am a bigger critic of myself than anyone else could ever be, you know? Um, So you've, so, so, and so that, that's, this, this, this is critical. I'm a bigger critic than anyone else could be of myself, right? This is, I think, the, the essence of, 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 of real entrepreneurialism. It's a person who, it's not just, hey, I'm doing things on my own. I've got my wee workstation and everything like that. And I'm like, you know, it's like, what the fuck does that even mean? It's the person who actually is not happy. Who was it? Was it? I think it was George Bernard Shaw. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna mangle the quote. But if you want to get something done, give it to a person who's. Oh no! It's the unhappy people in the world that are the result uh, that the world's progress are the result of. The people who are unhappy, who are, who who are critical and self-critical. How difficult is that to be? And and I'll just. You know, I mean, you know, I've got a daughter, you know, and she's in the industry. I, I you know, I've been around strong women my entire life. My mother was an, uh, an entrepreneur and, and was derided for it most of her life. My sister was as well. What is it? Uh, there's something about women, especially in the in the Western culture, where they they'll take it out on themselves where men will be outwardly aggressive, you know, with frustrations. Women will typically, how, uh, has, uh, is that kind of like part of what's driving you, you know, is, to, it, 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 it is not to take it out on yourself or do you do that? Is that part of, is that part of the sacrifice that, uh, that, that comes with this? Oh God, <laughs> now we're going real far down the rabbit hole. Well, let's not go down that far then. You know, um, I don't, yeah, and we don't want, we don't want to turn this into like you know therapy session. Therapy session. Like <laughs> I did not mean to be. Well, how long have you hated this, your father? You know, <laughs> a Freudian thing here. Um, but you know what you're talking about here is uh, is a woman, and 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 you walk in and you're a woman and you're an attractive woman and you walk in and that that's the first thing that people see and so all of a sudden there is a. Um, there's that um, uh, stereotype that you're working against, right? And um, so now you actually have to work past that, right? Because you're now in series what? Your series A? Uh, I would say it's a seed round that I'm seed raising. Round? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I did my pre-seed. So, now right. it's a seed. So you're round. in your seed round, right? So yeah, you're actually talking about big money now. It's a, it's a two million dollar raise. Yeah. Okay. That I'm so trying two, to do. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. How, how how are you walking into this? How how are you? How do you steal yourself? How do you how do you get yourself? How do you prep prep yourself? How do you get your head ready? Um, look, I you know fitness is a huge part of my life, and yeah. I would say that uh, you know my daily. My daily workouts are definitely my mental preparation for uh, for meetings and mm. for pitch meetings particularly. You know, I do a lot of kind of visualization exercises in terms of, you know, visualizing the success. And, um, 
you know, overcoming physical challenges in the gym, difficult exercises, whether it's squats, deadlifts, stuff like this. Again, I know that sounds corny. For me is when I visualize uh, success, you know, and relative like to now, relative to right now in my capital raise, what COVID has done has made me take a little bit of a backseat. You know, I tend to be, you know, when it comes to selling, because that's what raising money is, it's selling, you're selling your business, you're selling yourself. You know, I tend to be really you know, a bit more aggressive. Like, okay, I reached out, I sent you a pitch deck. I'm going to follow up. Um, you didn't respond in a week. Like, what's going on? You know, and I, I'm a big fan of communicating in different ways, like politely stalking people, you know? Okay. <laughs> so it's like, okay, I'm going to hit you up. You didn't respond to my email. I'm going to hit you up on LinkedIn or I'm going to try sales, to find right? your phone number. I'm, yeah. I'm going to try to talk to your secretary at your office. You know, I might even snail mail you because nobody does that anymore, you know? So with COVID, I've really kind of taken a step back, you know, because we're not in an environment where you can be aggressive, you know, it's totally tone deaf. So it's actually served me well where I've taken the approach that I'm kind of trying to like do virtual coffee with people and say, hey, you know, I'm not raising right now, which is kind of a half truth. Mm -hmm. Just say, you know, I'd love to do a virtual coffee and just get my brand on your radar. Hmm. Or can I send you a bottle? And and, and who are these people that you're reaching out to? You know, I've been doing a lot of virtual pitches. So there have been been a lot of virtual uh, pitch events. And I'll just kind of see who the lineup of VC is. If if it's VCs that have done consumer brands, um, have done anything in health and wellness, or have have any sort of bent towards female entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. I'll sign up. Um, and I'm great. I'm great at these. I'm really great at pitching. Um, I'd say right now it's difficult to close because people are not out there, you know, cutting checks. But what I'm really just trying to do is get a temperature gauge from VCs and see who's remotely interested, build up a nice list so that I can position my raise accordingly in terms of like, okay, I think this guy could cut an $800,000 check. I think these ones could cut a Mm $500,000 check. Mm -hmm. These could be a follow on. And then maybe I'll have a couple of angels that could fill up the round. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm taking it a little more, um, I'm taking a more strategic approach to the raise than I had, than I did in the past. So there's been a pause and Mm -hmm. it's allowed you to take a step back and kind of maybe even a step back and maybe even a step up to the next 10,000 foot level to kind of take a look at the entire environment that you're in and say okay let's plot this a little bit differently now you're a salesperson you come to sales from the honest perspective of just having to go out there and do it and you probably fell into all of the the the, the holes fell into all of the tripped over all the potholes how much of being an entrepreneur is a salesperson is being a salesperson. I mean, it's it's the I think it's the core of being an entrepreneur, one thousand percent. And how do you how how would you define a salesperson? So, in my early twenties, in between these, you know, teaching high school, working for Univision, I also did a job um, working for a B two B telecom company. And this was, if you've ever seen the movie Boiler Room, oh my God, this yeah. was a classic, yeah, classic Boiler, boiler Room, room right. sales job. Yeah. Everyone's that's got, all you got. Yeah, that's yeah, all yeah. you got. Everyone's everyone's got a cube, you know. Yeah. Um, we're cold calling. 
Yeah. Right? Because yeah. we were a telecom company. So we're basically sure. trying to say, okay, get rid of Verizon and pick us up for your phone and your internet needs. Mm -hmm. But it was business to business, mm -hmm. right? So I was looking at kind of like mid-tier businesses, maybe called on a handful of uh, corporations. And so it was a total free-for-all. Mm -hmm. It was, pardon my French, a shit show, right? Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't like you came into this company and they were like, okay, here's your vertical, here's your territory. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, it was a complete like, free-for-all. Yeah, it was dialing right? for dollars as we used to call it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it was all dudes, me, oh, two wow. other girls, oh, okay? Wow. Yeah. And it was one of my buddies from BC, like this former football player BC that kind of was like, oh, you should come, you know, work over here, right? And so I came in, never had done anything like this before, and I came after teaching high school. So I decided I'm going to call on public school systems in the state of Massachusetts, right? This is what I know. So I kind of wrote my script out, you know, and so I had like a really polished, very professional, nice way to talk to people on the phone. You know, where a lot of, whereas a lot of these guys just sounded like clowns, like straight out of that boiler room, like real schmarmy, cheesy wow. salespeople. Yeah, like, right. yeah. if you're calling me, dude, I'm hanging up the phone on you, you know, whereas. Yeah. Everyone, these, everyone wanted to be Vin Diesel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I would literally call places and I'd be, you know, quite soft, believe it or not. And I would just say, um, you know, I was a former educator um, and. I know how tight the budgets are, particularly in the public school systems, and especially, you know, for the suburbs where your taxes are going to be less than even the city of Boston and resources are tight. It's like this is a great way to be able to shave, you know, some money off of that budget and be able to reallocate it to, you know, better things for the kids in the schools. Hmm. That's how I would talk. Sounds like a value statement to me. Absolutely. Yeah, so right. I would get meetings and like a lot of the guys started to come around my table and listen to me because they were like, who is this piece of shit getting yeah. all these meetings? Right. And I was number one in the company, you know, for my goal for three months in a row. And then I quit because I hated it. I so, hated okay. it. So, okay. So there. So what was the key to your success right there? The key. What was the one key? It, it was literally, well, not only taking a more intelligent approach, but it was, you know, you just, you create the list and you just go down the list and you just keep going. But, and that's but it. What, but what was underneath that? What is what got you the appointments? What got you the appointments was that you were honest. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and people I was forget that. And I was authentic. Pe but people fucking forget that. And I was authentic. You were absolutely, well, that goes hand in hand. You were honest and authentic. I did this. I know the environment. Here's where I know that, you know, here's what you can do. I'm adding value to your life by doing this. How is that not what you're doing right now? Is that the same thing? It, it is. I mean, although you could argue that selling people alcohol is not adding value to their life. But. Well, but, you know, I always say that selling, <laughs> that selling people alcohol, I mean, I'm there to solve a business problem for someone. Right? I'm there to solve a business problem. So I have to identify the business problem. Now, if I'm selling to a retailer, selling to a bartender, they've got different business problems, right? I'm there to, you know, to, can I actually make a difference in your business, right? So, yeah, so you are solving a, someone's business problem, right? It's in a different way, but you're doing it through, you know, you're, you're being honest, you're being direct, uh, you're adding value, hopefully, to their life at that point or their business life, right? It takes different forms, different shades. 
I also worked in gym membership sales at one point. Oh my gu- god! And now, the guy, now, okay, now we're now we're in a whole other area. I know, but the guy <laughs> who owned the gym literally said to me, "He goes, any good business is about fulfilling a need." But for, well, that's exactly it. That's what a businesses do. You you identify the need, you fulfill the need. So, exactly. with with Cleos, you know, I would say there's a number of, of of needs that I'm that I'm fulfilling. So first of all, the the liqueur category is a big dinosaur category. Okay. Like the top selling brands, you want to know what the number one selling brands yeah. brand is in in liqueurs. I Tell want me. you to take a guess. Number one right now, 2020 in liqueur is um, uh, Grand Marnier. No. Okay. Grandma, I believe, is like number seven somewhere. Okay. Somewhere number there. Number seven. Okay. Uh, okay. So interesting give me an, choice. Give me another shot. In liqueurs across America, mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. You yeah. don't have it here. I don't have it here. Okay. Nope. All right. And uh, he's got twelve hundred bottles. You said. Yeah, and I don't have it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so that's the point that I'm trying to make here. Okay. Twelve hundred wow. bottles. You don't have this. And bottle it's a liqueur. Here. You actually don't have the top five liqueur brands in your. Liquor or liqueur? Liqueur, liqueur. Okay, no, I don't. So, uh, so, so I'm not num- a big liqueur. Yeah. So. Number one, but why? They're the cordials. They're the the condiments of your back that bar. That is exactly right. They're well, the condiments of your well, back bar. Well, they're I don't the, really have a bar. The I salt, have more of a collection. Right. You know? They're the salt, pepper, ketchup, I, mustard of your bar. Yeah. Right. So tell me one. So number one. Is I always Ma- thought that was bitters. Number one is Malibu. <laughs> Oh, Malibu right. liqueur. Exactly. Oh, no, I do not have that. Exactly. No. Okay. Wow. Okay, that Number makes sense. Number two yeah. right. is De Which one? All of them. Okay. So they're considered just like a family, yeah. okay. right? right? So De okay. yeah. what, Triple Sec, yep. Pucker, well, whatever well, got, they make. I'm, I'm looking at Triple Sec over here. It's it's Luxardo. Okay. It's it's not De Kuiper. So I've got, one, I've got number two right here. I've got one of them, you know. Luxardo's not even in no, the no, top but they're, 40. They're, yeah, they're a little bit. They're they're going to be a little bit more artisanal here. Number three is German. Take a wild guess. Oh Jesus, yeah, right. Of course, um, yeah, Jägermeister. Yes, yeah, right, yeah. Jaeger used to be a three million case brand like ten years ago, and yeah. it's now only about a million case brand. So that's yeah. how much it's in decline. So, yeah. and then you've got Bailey's Kahlua. So these are the top brands, yeah. right? Okay. So all well, the, I've got all those, and I've got rum chata and things like that. Sure. So actually, rum chata is kind of a beast in, yeah. if we're talking about that yeah. category. But yeah. when you think about it, the modern drinker, oh, yeah, the dr- modern well, drinker is not drinking things. Malibu. No, the they're... modern drinker is not drinking Bailey's on the rocks mm-hmm. or White Russians. You mm-hmm. know, but mudslides my guilty pleasure. I will fully admit that. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, it's an occasion drink. Sure. Like, yeah, yeah. I have it right. twice a year, maybe, right? right? right. So, we're, we're talking about kind of, you know, I call it like the last white space category. Every entrepreneur in the liquor space has been doing tequila and vodka yeah, yeah. and tequila and yeah, vodka, right, yeah. you know, and yeah. maybe and now whiskey, a little bit yeah. of mezcal. Yeah. And, of course, American whiskey has been yeah. huge, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, liqueurs are a category where I think there's a huge opportunity. Of course. And yeah. again, this happened organically, right? I wasn't like, oh, there is an opportunity in cordials. I'm going to create a Greek cordial. You know, it all happened organically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's also just happens to be that Cleos is made from this ancient Greek superfood, right? That has some residual health properties for the stomach and digestive so it, system. It, it, so it checks a box checks for a, a, a lot of people. Checks a few right? boxes. Exactly, yeah. 
uh, checks a few boxes for a lot of people on the, the, the health side. Um, and there, I'm sure there's a sustainable uh, a story behind there. Isn't Fair that? trade, sustainable, yeah, exactly. all of that yeah, right. um, in terms of the raw ingredient itself. Yeah. So even though Mastika comes from one island in the entire planet, yeah. I've vetted my formula to about 250,000 cases, okay. which is what very mature brands sell. Okay. You know, like Chambord is around that and mm. they're an over 50 year old brand, yeah. right? So formula that I've created, I can use for a good amount of time without worrying about having to change the formula at all. Again, I did this organically more so for its function as a cocktail ingredient, but it's also going to be low-cal, low-sugar. The reason that I did this was because I did so many focus groups when I was creating Cleos. Like I told you, I tested 17 Mm -hmm. different formulas. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, at the time, people like Dushan Zarek at Employees Only was still behind the bar, you know, and he said to me, Effie, You know, the bartender always wants to control the sweetness of the cocktail. Like, try to make this as low as you possibly can. In sugar. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was the challenge was Mm. if, you know, I did bone dry formulas of Cleos and they tested horribly with consumers. So I... Well, let me ask you this because that's Dushan Zarek telling you that. Right. Now, Dushan Zarek is uh, is sort of like, uh, you know, and for many people who don't know who Dushan is, the, the proprietor and uh, the creator of um, one of the most famous bars in in, in, in the industry called Employees Only. Uh, what was the place downtown uh, from that? The, the, the Macau Trading Macau Company. Macau Trading Company. And, but, they're, but he's working from that higher level super bartender dealing with the the the, the super um almost the elite of the cocktail crowd that sure. that had actually very very specific tastes that have been defined over the last 10 years that's not the standard american profile correct, correct. standard american profile is just give me a i mean it's it's you know it's a fireball Correct. So, so this brings me to, you know, one of my points that this is something I cover in my seminar is, you know, never create a product because you and your friends like it, right? Oh man, that's number one. And so I did, I did tons of focus groups, you know, if it were, if I, if I created Cleo's according to what New York cocktail bartenders wanted, I would have made a bone dry formula that had zero sugar that would have gone nowhere with consumers. Of course. And so I tested tons of formulas and I, every time I did trade focus groups, but then I also broke up the trade where I did, you know, let's call it cocktail nerds, then high volume style bartenders, you know, Mm -hmm. and more of these like kind of BC accounts. Mm -hmm. And then I would do consumer focus groups and my consumer focus groups were primarily upwardly mobile women. Um, That's a consumer target. Mastika tends to skew, let's say 60, 40 female, male. Um, again, not saying that I was trying to create a just only for female brand. No, but knowing that this skewed a little more female, I wanted to make sure that I had the opinion of that target uh, mm-hmm. consumer, right? So all in all, the big challenge for me was actually creating a formula that would satisfy all of those people, yeah. i.e. Yeah. cocktail bartender check, sure. high volume bartender check, now and consumer check. Not exactly. Easy. So... Yeah. Cleos is super well balanced. It's low cal, low sugar, but it's sweet enough yeah. that it also functions as that great cocktail yeah. ingredient. The press has been calling it bartender's olive oil. Yeah. And then for consumers, uh, from a consumer standpoint, you can just drink it on the rocks. It's yeah. that substitute for a vodka soda, you right. know. And a lot of people that are calorie conscious, health conscious, 
drink vodka soda, drink tequila on the rocks because they think it's lower calorie and it's healthy for them. And a lot of times they don't like the taste. You know, vodka, we know, is odorless, tasteless, colorless. I'm not saying vodkas don't have nuances in flavor. Of course they do. But Cleos is absolutely delicious. So let's talk about then this idea of to get where you're at, what's the personality profile? Who shouldn't be doing this? You know, who, who shouldn't be quote unquote the entrepreneur? So, I've had conversations with a lot of what Mark Cuban calls them entrepreneurs. Wantrepreneurs. Want, entrepreneurs, that's great. Meaning yeah. they want to be an entrepreneur. Sure, yeah. um, I've had a lot of conversations with people because people reach out to me. Typically, will say, if you are not 1000% in love with your product, like, do not do this, right? Okay. Also, you know, you have to take the time to do the diligence. Because like I said before, create a brand just because you and your friends like it. There mm-hmm. needs to be, you know, some kind of market viability. So yeah. you have to, te- to answer a question. You have yeah. to test that. Yeah. You know, you have to test that before you go put tons of money into something that yeah. may end up being just some niche thing. Right? So, okay. so those are the hows, but what's the person? Who's the person? So if, if, if I were to clone Effie... What Look, what what would be those things I would cl- I would clone? Very resourceful. Okay. You know, like I said, the 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 stick to itiveness, perseverance, the yep. kind of not giving up, finding a way mm-hmm. to do something, problem solver. <sighs> Go ahead. I I, I mean, I want to say aggressive, but not every entrepreneur needs to be aggressive. Uh, I've definitely I've definitely met softer entrepreneurs that have been successful um but yeah assertiveness would would definitely be uh, a a quality (laughs) you know being we're we're gonna go into that psychological profile yeah i know i mean being 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 independent you know people people that need that oh i want to go into the office and have all my buddies in the office and have like my buddy that i go to lunch with and this whole thing or or even like I need five people to bounce my ideas off of. Like that's not an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's not. It's not. That's it's not going to happen. Like, yes, I have an advisory board. Are they involved in operational things? No, no. they're not. Yeah. You know. Right. Do so I is, have uh, is, some? Is delegation uh, a good quality? Yes. Yes. Okay. So that is definitely another thing. Like, although most entrepreneurs think they can do it all, you have to recognize your strengths and your weaknesses. So that brings me to my next question. Is a good entrepreneur a good manager? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Because Steve I think that's jo- all, Steve it's all Jobs individual. Got, Steve Jobs got fired by his, uh, from his own company, right? Because he was a great entrepreneur, but he was a lousy manager. He yeah. came back to be a better manager, but he had, to, you know, he had to spend 40 days out in the wilderness. One of the things, you know, having been in Silicon Valley um, uh, companies for many years, uh, that's one of the things, it was almost a truism, is that the person who built the company is not the person you want to always lead the company. You know, is is there a... Yes and no. Yeah. Yes okay. and no. Um, I would have to say that, you know, personally speaking... Um, or lead the company to the next level of growth. Maybe that's actually the more, you know, that's maybe that's actually the more uh, accurate way to look at it. You know, I, I, I got certified as a trainer when I was... 19 years old I taught high school I also coached um, you know boys spring track 
I have, you know, one of my first jobs, I was the leader of a cleanup crew in Boston. I've always had kind of leadership roles. So do I need to work on my leadership style and professional development? Absolutely. Do I think that I'm not fit to be CEO of my own company? No, I don't. However, do I need a CFO? 1,000%. I get frustrated by numbers. Just like I got frustrated trying to get here to give directions (laughs) to you. Well, that's different because that's why we, but that's why you have different executive levels. A CEO is not supposed to be the CFO. I mean, that, that's actually a recipe for disaster. That's different. That's a different scenario. But I'm talking about a person who brings an idea from nothing into something. That is a talent. Mm-hmm. That is all of these things that we're talking about, right? That is, you know, you, you got luck and all of these other things and perseverance. All these things actually, uh, actually become part of that. Is that the person then to also lead the company into its next period of growth. I mean, I just, like I said, I just think it's important to kind of know your strengths and weaknesses and then be able to delegate those things that you are not good at. Like, I don't need to be good at the numbers. I just need to hire somebody that I know is really sure. good at and the numbers. And you can trust, yeah, right. You know, yeah. I kind of have a wish list of salespeople for different regions across the United States because that's one thing that I can tell you is I can identify who good salespeople are. You know, so what do you um, look for? What's the first thing you look for? I, I definitely like people that are, you know, uh, that are assertive, no doubt. Sure. Um, you know, we were talking about this earlier, how difficult it is to kind of navigate the three tier system and, you know, really work through distributors as a startup brand. You're kind of you're always going to be that nobody. You're never going to be as important as the big vodka brand that's paying the bills or the big wine portfolio that's paying the bills. So. You've got to be able to, you know, kind of, uh, what do they say? The squeaky... Squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah, squeaky wheel gets the grease. So you've got to be able to kind of like get in there, make noise, build those relationships, and then also be enough of a self-starter that you're going to go out and open up 500 accounts on your own because you're just a rock star anyways. And the distributor ends up being just a high-paid delivery service at the end of the day. W2, right? Wheels in a warehouse. You know what I mean? So... That's definitely what I am and we're talking about for those people for, for those know? people who are listening that are not in the liquor industry where we're talking about specific to the liquor industry here what we we, we work through a, uh, what's called a three tier system where uh, the producer like Effie can only legally sell to a registered wholesaler that wholesaler then can only legally sell to the next tier which is the trade. It's either bartenders, restaurants, and or liquor stores. And then they, in turn, can sell only to the uh, the consuming public. And that's what, you know, that's post-prohibition, you know, liquor companies all have to follow this very Byzantine uh, three-tier system here. And uh, it's its own thing, you know, uh, very different from other types of sales. We're going to wrap this up here, uh, Effie. This has been uh, absolutely just, you know, I, I can't tell you this has been fantastic. I've learned, I've learned uh, so much from this conversation from you because, I mean, you're, you're, like, you're like the real deal here with entrepreneurial effort. And all of the, you know, at one point it got emotional here because you know, it brought things that, that are part of what's driving you, you know. And then there's the, the tactics 
the, that you deploy out there. But uh, at, the, at the bottom of this is this ineffable spirit that drives all entrepreneurs. And if you don't have that, I mean, you nailed it. You have to be able, we have to be willing to look at the, the, the long arc of this and look at the 10 the year plan and, and be willing to sacrifice an enormous amount in order to get to that. Otherwise, you know, don't get into this, you know, do something else that's more structured and you'll have more fun. I'm also the first Greek woman in history to start a liquor brand. People seem to care huge. about this right now. Right, right. And you this know? is, just so everyone remembers, this is Effie Panagopoulos. Oh, oh no, come on. I you knew, said you, it right. You didn't think I was going to do that, yes. right? Yes. No, this is Effie Panagopoulos. And Effie, this has been fantastic. Uh, yeah, the first Greek woman to lead a major spirit brand here. This is huge. You're a force. You're a force in the industry, and that's fantastic. Um, I'm happy to know you. I'm happy to have you on here. Uh, I'm happy to have you define what, uh, what what entrepreneurship really is. So, for those of you who are listening, thanks for uh, being with us. And you know, as we're always plugging something here, my name is Robin Robinson. I am the author of the Complete Whiskey Course a comprehensive tasting guide in 10 lessons that is part of my entrepreneurial effort out there this is my product out there and i'm out there hawking it in the same way that effie is with her with cleos so uh so let that be a lesson to everyone have a long-term plan be willing to sacrifice be assertive be like effie right so i think we actually have um a, a little hashtag going right here you know Effie, thanks so much. Great having you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And we will see you soon again. Cheers. 